Fantastic, fantastic. Well, again, you all look so beautiful. I, I do want to say that next week, and when I found out Ben Daly was coming to Real Life Church, first of all, I said, how did you, Dean, how'd you get him? Uh, I know Ben, we serve on uh, some teams together uh, with the CMN Church Planning, our lead team with uh, Mark Batterson and some great leaders, Rob Ketterling, and Ben's a part of that team out of Dallas. He pastors one of the great churches in this country uh, that was led by a, a infamous pastor named J. Don George. Um, they're in, uh, it's like right between Dallas and Fort Worth. Um, but this guy, when Tyler said this guy can preach, folks, uh, you're getting one of the finest orators and communicators that loves the Lord. Um, and he's going to be here next weekend. I wouldn't miss that for nothing. Matter of fact, I'm thinking about flying back for next weekend just to be around Ben Daly. Uh, so the Saturday event and the Sunday event, you guys will not want to miss that. So, amen. Get your Bibles ready. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. My 30-day contacts fell out after four days, and I didn't bring a replacement, so I got the old Rayleigh's readers on here um, today that I'll be going back and forth. Um, so, before we get into the text, Karen and I are just, um, uh, we think of you every weekend, every no matter where we're at in the country, um, we kind of glance at our watches, uh, the clocks, and we know when 9 o'clock California time is. It's either 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock because we usually are back east or if we're in the same time zone, but we think of you every single week. Um, going to a new role for the kingdom and serving this university, not another church, um, I know this may sound a little syrupy or sappy, but I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart, is that uh, nobody uh, has replaced our, uh, you in our hearts. We think of you all the time. We pray for you all the time. We're cheering on uh, this amazing moment in the life of this church. I'll talk more about that a little bit later in the heart of my message, but we're doing well. Uh, we're living in downtown Minneapolis. We have an apartment. We're up on the fourth floor, third floor. Uh, apartment 306. We live right over a Whole Foods, which is nice because when Karen's traveling or has abandoned me for whatever reason, um, I'm able to take the uh, elevator straight down into the frozen or the food section of Whole Foods. <laughs> and so, and then go right back up in my pajamas. I can go down in uh, the clothes I slept in and go down and get breakfast, which is pretty cool. Uh, just like home. And, but the city... The city is beautiful. We are getting ready for a, a little bit of a climate change uh, that's about to happen in Minneapolis. But we have several students from real life there, and Andrew Toft and then uh, Max Valsicek there. There, we got some more students coming next year. Phenomenal university. The Lord's blessing in, in a tremendous way. Here, if you don't know, here's where it's located. I'll give you a little glimpse. So our university, that's our soccer and lacrosse field. And the school uh, kind of horseshoes this way around that field. You see where the Super Bowl is going to be at U.S. Bank Stadium there. We actually, there's a building with a bunch of uh, like round chimneys on it. Right in front of that is our music conservatory and recording uh, studios. And we own that property. And then you go about another block and then our property starts again. Right downtown, uh, it's really the most unusual setting. You know, we're, we're trying to do really, we have three things that this school is trying to do. Most universities are trying to do one thing. That's be a great academic institution so we're competing straight up with Ohio State and Minnesota and, and all those other great universities and our grads from our business school or in uh, degrees in communication or journalism or competing and getting jobs straight up against other uh, graduates of those universities. It's really remarkable. The business school, the school of church leadership, the uh, um, fine arts, uh, 
uh, college. It's all just tremendous, tremendous people uh, lead these univers this part of the university, and the academics are top notch. But then we're trying to do two things, actually. And some schools are trying to do two. They're trying to be a great academic institution, just like any other university, but we're trying to be a Christian university. So University of Minnesota, Stanford, Cal, they're not trying to be a Christian university. Uh, they're trying to be a great academic institution. So we got this other burden that we carry to be a great Christian university. But then North Central carries a third burden uh, that narrows it down to maybe a handful of one or two or three schools in America. We do a third thing, not just trying to be a great academic school, not trying to be a great Christian school, but we're seeking to be an on-fire Christian university. So it, it, is, it is, and when I say that, I don't say that tongue-in-cheek because there's a lot of great Christian schools across this country, but they don't have any metrics for the, the presence of God on their university campus. And um, so doing that and being a top-tier academic institution is a tremendous burden. But every day at 11 o'clock, this is where Karen and I are at, 11 o'clock Central Time, 9 o'clock uh, Pacific Time. This is where you would find us. Um, that is our university chapel. It's jammed like that. The presence of God is so powerful in that room. Sean Smith had just preached. This was this year, a little over a month ago. And several hundred rushed to the front of the building just to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And just, just the fire of God was just falling on the university. And so it's, it's special because of that, but also special because it sits in a setting of commerce and mission uh, with, of course, all the Fortune 500 companies, all the pro sports around it. But we have 25,000 Somali refugees that live all around our campus. At any given moment, you have 1,000 Muslims walking through our campus, moms in their burqas with their children on their way to the market or on their way to school just as you go to class. So you're stepping out of one class, walking to your theology class, and you're walking with, with a family from Somalia for those 100 steps um, outside or in the walkways. And it just does something to your faith, whether you're going to be running a Walgreens in Omaha or leading a great church or, or mission or business. It does something to your faith to be in that setting of mission and commerce. So that's what we're doing. The Lord is blessing. It's just been a tremendous experience. It's 10 times harder than I thought. Um, it is... I don't think I've had a job for 35 years. Uh, I don't know what, I, what I've been doing for 35 years, but I told Karen, I said, I think the last job I had was at Kmart, and then this, because I've never been this tired. You go to work uh, there at Monday at seven in the morning, and you're done Friday at six o'clock, then we travel on the weekends. It's craziest. One Wednesday night, not long ago, I got back to the apartment, it was 6.40. Karen picked me up out in front of the administration building like at 6.30. And she said, when you walked out, it looked like you were getting off work from the lumber mill. I just kind of walked out of the mill, put me in the car, took me home, and it was 6.45, and I looked at the clock, and I go, man, Bible study is in 15 minutes. How have these people done this? Because I've never, for the first time in my life, my appreciation for people who have jobs and go to Wednesday night church, I bow to you, I thank you, I cannot tell you. How impressed I am with you. So you're saying, what did you do next on that Wednesday night? Well, I fell asleep. <laughs> I sat on the couch. Whoa, 8 o'clock. 
But in all seriousness, uh, it has just been um, a wonderful, painful uh, experience of serving in this uh, new space of life. And uh, we miss you. We miss the church. We miss our friends. And we're so grateful for Pastor Dean and Amy and the genuineness. It's not ceremony and it's not symbolic. The genuineness of their love for us and uh, um, to always make us feel free and welcome and loved. And, you know, when you plant a church, uh, you have a special love affair for the rest of your life with that place. We've always had a love affair with Harvest, and we have a love affair with real life now that lasts with you. And and I just want to, again, release you. You know, I, I tell people, they go, well, like, yeah, you know, Pastor Dean and you, what do we, we have a conflict. No, don't have a conflict. You don't replace an old friend with a new friend. Have two friends. <laughs> have two friends. Don't replace. Just have two. And uh, we are pastors that served here, and uh, we feel loved and honored today, but I am so blessed. You know, Pastor Dean, he's something else. When he was up here sharing about Sean and Sherry, I just wanted to come up and give him a hug uh, because I, I know this role and I know this moment of transition. And let me just tell you that our whole ministry life, dating back to when we were youth pastors, Real Life Church, Harvest Church, uh, this place has always been this, had an unusual assignment. Um, we've always had people at the beginning of something, about half of our staff have always come and stayed forever. And then half of the staff passes on through. And we've always been like this magnet at harvest here. Even back when I was a youth pastor, people that were like got off course in life and they just kind of found their wholeness, their healing, their reset. And then they were relaunched into what God had for them. And I had an intern one time when I was a youth pastor. This kid came and was our intern, and his name is Rob Hoskins. And Rob Hoskins has gone on to build probably the world's leading missional outreach called the Book of Hope. And, um, and I remember Harvest Church back in 1991, 92, right when Russia opened up the Soviet Union uh, opened up 89, 90, right in there. But they, the doors opened up, and the very first team to ever go into the Soviet Union was on a 30-day quick notice. They called, Rob called, and we, Carl Winther and some people got together real fast, and we did a Book of Hope trip to the Soviet Union. Greg Sweeney and, and Tracy and Carl and Craig Sweeney went, and, and they went, and they were the very first team that ever went into Russia was out of Harvest Church. I mean, what does that become? I mean, the whole Book of Hope distribution worldwide. But that seed started through an internship and then through a Harvest Church. And then um, shortly thereafter, this guy, we were getting the bowling alley there in Elk Grove. And there was a guy that had this ministry to rule uh, pastors. It was called Rule Compassion or Church Care Network. His name was Hal Donaldson. And we got this junky old bowling alley in Elk Grove. And then about two months later, this warehouse next to it on Grantline that had like a John Deere tractor uh, storage area. I mean, it was a dump. He said, hey, we'll give you this extra 10,000 feet for 1,000 bucks. And I said, let's grab it. We got to grab that John Deere warehouse there at Grantline in 99. And the, my team was saying like, why? Our whole church is a pile of junk here and we are a warehouse. Why would we want to get more warehouse? I said, well, we're going to build a church in here. We're going to do this, this, this. It's all going to happen. We're going to need that space. And they go like, 
we are aware, huh? And honestly, so I had to just basically beg him, said, let's, let's, we're just going to do this, 1000 bucks a month. Let's get this where So we started, a guy named Joe Elston. He got a little, we had a little donated um, um, forklift. We built some shelves and we started putting food in there and pastors from little towns would come to Elk Grove, load up their pickups on Saturday afternoon and then take that back to their little town. It started to take off. We started doing some mobile trips in trucks and it, that little warehouse. You know what that became? That became the convoy of hope. Probably the world's next to the Red Cross has become, and Salvation Army, one of the most iconic symbols of global compassion that happened out of there. So what am I saying is this. For whatever reason, God launches things out of these churches. I deeply believe Sean and Sherry, they're in a wonderful city of Weed, California. They come here. We have family from Weed here today, don't we? We honor Weed. We love we. <laughs> Weed has been very good to real life church. <laughs> Brought a lot of joy to our church. So you can hashtag that all you want. Because it's true. I fully expect Sean and Sherry to touch the world. And for us to have been a part of that process is awesome. It's the way the kingdom works. We've all got to go be faithful to what Jesus tells us for a couple seconds. And then we all get to come back and live together forever. So I got to go for two seconds, three seconds over to Minneapolis. And, but it's only a couple seconds. And then eternity hits. In our fellowship, we're already in that space of eternity. These are simply assignments. That's all it is, just assignments. Jesus knows where we are needed next, where we plant. And so, um, in this case, the Lord's bringing them to a great place. And one of the great churches in America is in need of one of our leaders. What's that tell you? folks, about this place. It's a powerful sending agency. So I'm proud of you. My heart is sad, but I want to say thank you, Sean and Sherry, for your great, great job of serving this church. All righty, Luke chapter five, beginning at verse one. Here we go. We've only got 24 minutes and 48 seconds here, according to the wall. Uh, on one occasion, uh, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, speaking of Jesus, the crowd was pressing in on Jesus. They were all at eye level. Imagine being in a large throng of people and you can't get a focal point of the speaker, nor can the speaker get the focal point of the crowd because you're all mashed together at head level, like being in a crowded mall. On that occasion, the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear uh, the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Most scholars believe that this was not the end of the day, but the end of the fishing cycle. Almost like in most parts of the world where the weather turns ill and difficult in the fall, they put their boats away. 
They kind of boat through Labor Day and then they put the boats up until springtime. So most believe that this washing of the nets wasn't simply throwing them in the corner until 6 a.m. sunrise and they're back out on the boat, but they were literally putting the boats away. There was a cycle or a season of fishing that was coming to an end. They were really kind of buttoning things down. So Jesus saw those empty boats. The owners of the boats were washing their nets. Simon, getting into one of the boats, Jesus, which was Simon's, Jesus asked permission of Simon, asked him to put out a little from the land. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, now put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. We'll pick up the story in a second. So here we are going to look at a narrative that's lost in a long series of story clips. We're kind of jumping into the scene by the Sea of Gennesaret. Early on in Jesus's leadership of the disciples, they believed he was God's agent. They weren't sure he's the son of God, but they had respect for Jesus as the agent of God, somewhere between a prophet and God himself. It was in that emerging zone of revelation to, pe to people like Peter. His teaching ministry was profound. It was piercing. People gathered by the lake, and it was an unorthodox crowd of disciples mixed with uh, the curious. There weren't too many times where you could parse out the disciples only, though Jesus did that in his teaching time. Here was like most settings in which you had a mix <clears throat> of the committed and the curious. Jesus is about to take the disciples deeper but he's also about to speak at the same time in a way that satisfies the curiosity of the crowd. They're all kind of mixed together. Jesus wants to create a teaching setting. So he sees these two empty boats <coughs> by the shore. He asks Peter for the permission to enter his boat. He gets into that boat and creates this platform, this floating dock, uh, in which he now can address the crowd, and the crowd can kind of see who the teacher is. So he enters that boat. He sits down to teach, which was the custom of the synagogue. They stood to read because of the nature of the scrolls, and they had to literally, as they were open lengthwise, the reading of the scroll, the reader would often walk along the scroll. But then the teaching time, they would sit and say, they would distinguish between, now I'm speaking instead of reading God's word, these are my comments and teaching of that word. So the teacher in the synagogue would sit. So Jesus turned this boat into a floating synagogue and he sits down and begins to teach this crowd. It says, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, uh, master, we toiled all night and took nothing so you can feel the enthusiasm drop of the Bible right there in a massive way. Peter was buttoning up the hatches. He was putting the boat away, storing the nets. The fishing cycle and season had come to an end. And here Jesus is telling him, unpack what you just packed. And now we're going to take the boats out into the deep and we're going to go fishing and Peter responds to Jesus with this Debbie Downer response. 
We think when Jesus talks to us that we immediately go, he's talking to me, he's talking to me, Jesus is to No, most of the time, it's like this. Um, Jesus, okay. Uh, we have toiled all night and have a big fat zero, nothing. We have nothing to show for our toil. It's very hard to hear Jesus when you have been toiling and have nothing to show for it. I've been praying, but no answer has come. I keep paying my tithe, and I'm deeper in debt, and my bills aren't paid. I keep praying for sick people, and they get worse. Nothing seems to improve. I'm toiling, but I have nothing to show for it. And Jesus steps into that depleted, defeated, futile mindset and begins to ask of us, to re-engage in toil? You could feel Peter go, really, seriously? We just got it all organized in the shed. You want me to yank it all back out again, do this again? And all he says is this, Master, we toiled all night and it took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. <laughs> a, lot of time our, a lot of times our relationship with God is exactly that. I have no enthusiasm about this. I don't feel no romance, no dance, no leap, no joy. You bet, sir. Because you're asking me, I'll do it. But I'm telling you, I've already done that. We've been doing that. Zero. And Jesus says, well, yeah, I need you to go do that again. Anybody else asking Peter to do this? But God's agent that was emerging somewhere between a prophet and deity, Peter doesn't quite know, but he knows enough to say, okay, I'll do it if you're asking. How many times is our faith in that exact same spot? We have no idea that we are on a miracle of mission. Nor does it make sense when the carpenter tells the fisherman how to fish. It's like Jesus telling a woman how to be a better wife. Or Jesus telling a man who was never married how to be a great father. Sometimes we are going, okay, I've been doing that. Now, I've been there. I've been through church transitions. I've seen pastoral. I know where this is going. Be a little honeymoon period. It'll shake down. Half the people leave. Half will stay. Some new folks will come. Dean will be their pastor, but this won't be their church. And then the people here go, this is my church. You're not my pastor. We've been here. We've toiled. We know how this works. Been through church stuff. Okay, back to the toil. I guess I'll give, I'll volunteer, and I'll pray. <laughs> Been doing that, Lord, and got nothing to show for it. And here the Lord comes and asks us to throw ourselves 
wholeheartedly back into the toil. But Peter, for his credit, does do it. Sometimes that's all we have to give God is, okay? It's because you're asking me, Jesus. I don't feel, I'm not feeling this. I'm not feeling any of this. But because Jesus, you're saying it. That's okay. Because you're on a miracle of mission. You're actually on a very short journey, not a long one. I'm going to show it to you. If all you can give God is this right now, give it to him. Because he's asking of it. Even though you don't see the validity in the ask. Because it sure looks like what you've been doing already. Okay. Now watch this. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, <coughs> they enclosed or caught a large number of fish, and the nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help them. And when they came and filled both boats, and they came and filled both boats, so they began to sink. But when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, thank you. No, he said this, depart from me. Why would you throw Jesus out of the boat? Why would this kind of blessing elicit wanting to be isolated from the Savior? Why would he send Jesus away? We're going to answer that question in just a moment. For I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he, Peter, and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. This absolute and total surrender took place in this unorthodox setting where this miracle of mission happened in the blink of an eye. How could you go from, yes, sir, to abandoning everything that you have to follow him? What shifted? What was the moment? What's the part of the story that we're missing? Here's five observations. Actually, six. Six observations from Luke chapter 5. First of all, I know this sounds very Sunday school-esque, but number one is Jesus sought permission to enter and use the vessel. Jesus asked permission to enter that boat. The whole story remains sealed for all time. If Peter was not willing to let Jesus into his boat... Now, when you've put the nets away, when you've put the boat up, probably symbolically, it's over. When you've been toiling with no result, it's hard to let Jesus back in to the equation. Especially when he says, I need to, I, I want to create this. So Jesus, he had to create a platform to manifest his kingdom. The boat <coughs> was the platform that God was using. Jesus was always looking to find ways to create 
a way to communicate to people. The platform is fluid. The platform is innovative. The platform is new. It shifts. God just did a shift in my life. I thought I'd be a pastor for the rest of my life. And God said, no, I need a different platform to manifest the gifting or your life through something else in a different setting. It's hard to reconcile that. Lord, you've always used me this way and in this setting. Now we're going to be placed offshore in this boat in a new setting, but it never happens if Peter doesn't allow Jesus on board. Welcome aboard, sir. Because when you have been toiling and all you have is a zero to show for it, and then Jesus comes whispering, calling, conversing, dialoguing. It's very easy to say, eh, I'm passing on this one. I'm just going to watch from a distance. And if there's enough new momentum, I'll get back in the game. But I got to play this one coy. Peter welcomed Jesus back in his boat. Don't overestimate that significance in this story. I need to use you again. I'm putting the boat away, Lord. Nets are been put away. I used to have a fresh burden for young people. I was going to be a youth pastor, going to do this. Then I just have, just golly, man, too much nothing for too long. Too much toil with no result. I just am just really tired. And I'm burned out. And I, I really have nothing left to give you, and Jesus isn't asking for anything. He's simply asking for access. Just give me access. Give me a chance to step on board again. So Jesus, though, can't enter without permission. You can turn him away and say, no, I own the boat. I own the seasons. I own the timing. I own the knowledge of when things aren't working. There's no fish biting right now. There's no need to use me right now, Lord. And he says, I want back on your boat. You got to welcome Jesus back on board. All he wants is access. What he does from that point forward, it's all on him. So Jesus Gains access. And the second thing, as I've mentioned, is he asked Peter to re-engage in the toil. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. When Jesus first re-enters you, your boat, most likely he's going to ask you for things and to do things that you've already done. I need you to pray. I know. Give. I know. Be available. I know. That's all part of the toil. It's not bringing the results. Something's gone wrong. And he says, Peter, I want you to get back inside the toil. Let's get back out in the waters. And I want you to put your nets over here. And even though it's not brought the result that you've dreamed of your whole life, just trust me. Don't kick me off the boat. Don't deny me access. And so Peter Let's Jesus on board, and he simply obeys him to put the nets in the deeper waters. It says then 
that Peter obeyed simply because Jesus instructed him to. We won't park there much longer, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. Have you ever read something in the Bible, something as fundamental as, as um, tithing or giving or prayer, sharing your faith, keeping your heart clean? And you go, I know that. I, I, I'm not motivated. I don't see how that connects to prosperity in my life right now. Did that. I'm still a mess. But he, he did say he obeyed him because Jesus instructed him to do it. There are segments of our Christian faith. There's no romance. There's no pop. There's no it factor going on. It's simply what the Bible says for us to do. And Jesus instructs us to do it, and we have to step into that with all of our being. When Peter did that, suddenly when he had done this, done what? What Jesus instructed him to do, welcomed him on board, and then did what he asked him to do. When he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. Their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats, so they began to sink. I'm telling you, when this releases, there's not one boat big enough to handle what Jesus wants to do. There's not one ministry, there's not one church, there's not one preacher, there's not one of anything that can handle all that God wants to do through our life and around our life. Suddenly it took two boats and both of those began to sink. The nets are splitting and the boats are sinking because of results, not decay and not emptiness and uselessness. When we walk with the Lord, this moment of genuine encounter comes. I don't know how it comes or when it comes. I do see the pattern of Scripture. That at our lowest points of futility, when we feel like we've exhausted all of the Christian behaviors, we got them down, we're doing them, and they're not paying off. It's a zero. I got nothing. Then Jesus says, I want you to come and do, I've been doing that, Jesus. He said, yes, and I want to take you to some deeper waters. Okay, I'll do it. I'll welcome you. I'll give you access and I'll do what you ask, Lord. Then, this happens. It's so phenomenal that nobody's boat is big enough to hold it. Our whole life we say this. There's enough revival to fill every church. We, none of us have ever seen it in our lifetime yet. Never been in those waters yet. But I believe they exist. I still believe those deep waters exist. I still believe that God can do, even through my faithlessness and my rebellion and my undercurrents that don't honor him at times in my life, that if I welcome and give him access and I do what he asks me to do, that I believe that deep waters still exist and that God can do something that will split the nets and sink the boats. Split the nets and sink the boats. In these days in which we live. And so Peter is experiencing this. And you would think at this point, he would call every cousin who has a boat. We have the biggest commercial hall in history. 
we are going to monetize this catch and we're going to build, buy bigger ships and catch more fish. Instead, Peter has this response that shifts the entire story. We're just about done here. Piano player, why don't you come join me on the stage? Here's Peter's response. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus and said, praise the Lord. No, he said, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Peter's only response is to separate himself from Jesus. Why? Why would Peter want to separate himself from Jesus? Because Peter understood the distance already existed. His worldview, his approach to faith, his approach to the kingdom had become one of toil and unanswered prayer, of toil and unfulfilled dreams. Jesus steps into that and Peter found faith enough to say, yes, sir, I'll do it. He allowed a carpenter to teach him how to fish. And suddenly when the haul happens, we naturally would think like one of my favorite movies is the Count of Monte Cristo. So they find all the treasure and his wicked little right-hand guy says, there's enough gold there for 50 ships down there. He's thinking about more ships to haul more gold. Peter doesn't think about more ships to haul more fish. Peter goes, Jesus, leave me alone. I'm a sinner. I'm sinful. Rarely does what the enemy wants to keep from us is he wants us to be motivated by judgment and law, thinking it will translate into holiness. And I, there's a role of law to awaken but law and judgment can never create pursuit. Law and judgment only awakens you to the doom and the peril of sin and life without Christ. That's why in hell, I, even as a kid, I said, that verse of scripture that they're in hell and they're gnashing of teeth, that was always intriguing to me, even as a little boy. And I came to find out that it signifies that even people are fighting and unawakened will not confess, will not are fighting judgment. Judgment just produces fight in people. Abundance, grace, result, and reward produced repentance in Peter. God doesn't reward us so we can calculate bigger barns. He rewards us so that we can understand our sinfulness and then let his nearness and his love cleanse us and impart to us the real miracle of the mission, which wasn't a fishing expedition. It was to prepare them to approach humanity and put themselves at great risk because the first person that they encounter after this story is lepers. And at a time where just nearness to leprosy would produce leprosy in you. So I'm gonna send you to places of great risk of human peril and Jesus tells Peter, don't be afraid. Because it's, it's a frightening thing to be separated from God. It's a frightening thing to create distance between you and the Lord. It doesn't calm the situation it pours gasoline on the fear. 
and the coldness and the isolation. And that's why Jesus said, don't fear, Peter. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. You're going to be fishing for men. And it says at that point in time that Peter and his companions left everything and followed him. This total and abject surrender. I penned it simply this way. Peter took, took on a, Jesus took Peter on a short journey. Next slide. Okay, right here. Peter, Jesus took Peter on a short journey from scarcity to the supernatural. Some of you have been on a long journey. You've been distancing yourself from Jesus. God has blessed you. And blessing has actually haunted you. Opportunity because it makes you feel sinful because you know the gap between you and God's grace is great. Or you perceive it to be. But the way back is not a long journey. The way back is a short journey. From scarcity to the supernatural is a short journey. Here's a man putting his boat away, hanging up his net, calling it a season. Welcomes the Lord into his boat, gives him permission to enter. Here, you have access, God. Does what he asks him to do, experiences a supernatural result that causes him to be transformed because Peter, Peter didn't just need a meaningful life, he needed a transformed heart and you cannot have a meaningful life without a transformed heart. You cannot have a meaningful life without a transformed heart. So God is transforming Peter's heart, cleansing his heart and commissioning him into a meaningful life of fishing for people not material gain. It's a powerful experience to go from scarcity to the supernatural. And I'm here to tell you today, it's not a long journey back. It's as simple as genuine access, total submission to what he says to do with your life, what he says to do with daily life, and allowing God to bring a result that, that humbles you and produces a purity of heart in your life. Today, I mentioned it, I'm done here. When you plant a church, you have a love affair for the rest of your life with that church. At least I do. So I have two loves in my life, harvest in real life. To be here today, it's healing. It is powerful. This church... I leaned over to Sharice Zaleski and then to Jesse and I said, there's always been a sincerity about this church. A sincerity. People love the Lord and they want to worship the Lord and they want to do what God tells them to do with their life. There's a beautiful sincerity about this church that because I get to travel around the country almost every weekend, I now have a lot of contrasts, a lot of settings. There's something about this church that's even different from Harvest Church. I know God has brought you the perfect leaders, perfect leaders. Dean is so kind. He's up here just so sweet, like Mr. Rogers. He's just giving these announcements. Do not be fooled. There's a fierceness 
a fierceness for the kingdom on their lives. That fierceness is worth following. I'm telling you, friends. And um, I just pray blessing. I just want to ask if we could close our eyes for a moment before Pastor comes back up. Pastor Scott, I, I, I have been toiling and I feel like it's a zero. I'm doing all these Christian behaviors and I'm not getting the results. And I do want to give Jesus access to the boat. I do want to give Jesus access to my boat. But I've been telling him he can't board. At least not now. Not now. I'm, I'm cleansing nets. I'm, I'm doing other stuff. I can't be all in. Before Pastor Dean comes, I just want to ask if that is a word for the Lord for you. Can you just slip a hand up to heaven real quick and just say that's, that's kind of a perfect description of where I'm at. Can you stand, those with their hands up? There's many of you. Just those with a hand, stand, stand, stand. No need not to stand now. This is all part of access right now. Jesus, I welcome you back into my boat. You have access. Tell me what to do next. Even if you're asking me to do something that I have already been doing, ask me again, Lord. And now, Lord, lead me to deep waters and release, Lord, a reward. And I promise I will not think about more boats. I will think about my heart, the purity, the clarity, the cleansing of my heart, Jesus. I just pray great blessing upon every life. Bless Dean and, and Amy, God, in ways they've never dreamed, Jesus. Let them truly say five years from now, wow, we just never saw all that coming. Jesus, provide land, buildings, millions, influence around the world, Lord. Bless them in their toil, God. Split the nets, sink the boats, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Pastor Dean, would you come?